0: Good evening to you. Proverbs chapter 30 this evening. While we're turning there, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, just wave to them and they'll get a Bible into your hands. And then if you don't own a Bible at all, God wants you to own a Bible, to read the Bible, to know the Bible. And so make that Bible a gift from Him to you uh, this evening. We pick things up in chapter 30. And this begins with the words of Agur, the son of Jacob, his utterance, uh, this man declared to Ithiel, uh, to Ithiel, and to Ukal. And so here is this man by the name of Agur, and he, we don't know anything about him other than his name is mentioned here in the passage, and uh, he is wanting to declare this wisdom that's contained in this chapter that's associated with him to two of his uh, pupils that are uh, named there in uh, verse 1. He says, Surely I am more stupid than any man. Now, what kind of a teacher admits that to their students? <laughs> what kind of a parent that that to a child? But here he is. We see humility. I like him already. He said, surely I'm more stupid than any man and do not have the understanding of a man. I neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One who has ascended into heaven or descended, who has gathered the wind in his fists, who has bound the waters in a garment, who has established the ends of the earth. What is his name and what is his son's name, if you know it? And so he's speaking to these students, and basically he's illustrating through his own life that the first step toward becoming a wise person is to realize that we are not wise enough to govern our own lives, but that we need the wisdom of God to govern our lives. I don't know about you. We all have a different testimony in how we come to know the Lord. When I came to know the Lord, it certainly wasn't because I was afraid that of heaven, or, or afraid of ending up in eternity in hell, or anything like that. I should have been afraid of it, but I wasn't. I wasn't even that smart. I'd, I was living life, and this kind of gets into Ecclesiastes, which we get into next time. I couldn't live life without meaning and purpose, and I couldn't discover it anywhere but in the God of the Bible and in the truth of the Bible. And the second thing is, is that I was just sick and tired after spending a few short years of my life living it under my own wisdom. And uh, uh, I just realized I don't know anything about how to run my life. I'm going to go back to the God who does know how to give us the wisdom to uh, run our lives and the wisdom to make decisions in our life. And there's that recognition of our need for God's wisdom. When he declares himself to be more stupid than any man, the word stupid means to be brutish, it means to be dull-minded, it means to be like an animal. And so he has the understanding, Agur does the understanding that until we are in a relationship with God, the relationship that we've been created for, and we are living in obedience to His will and His plan for our lives, living in line with uh, His wisdom uh, separated from that relationship and that obedience, then we live a life on the level of an animal. We certainly see that, don't we? As we see kind of the Judeo-Christian influence upon our nation uh, ebbing and more and pe- more people choosing to operate independent of that, that foundation being broken down, we see people becoming more and more animal-like. And um, all you have to do is pick up any... Newspaper, in any city you want to, on on any given day, go to any news website that you'd like to, on the Internet, and all of it lays the case for that every single day. It's amazing how all of life preaches to us the truth of God's Word, the truth of God's perspective, um, if we're willing to hear it and to recognize it. And then what he does here in verse 4 when he starts to pose these series of questions... He poses five questions which kind of express this great divide that exists between God and man. And he basically is posing these five questions to the atheist or the person who denies the existence of God or the agnostic. And asks him of, ask them five questions, uh, and the only answer to all five questions is God in order to prove to them and show to them the folly of anyone living under their own wisdom when the wisdom of God is available to us. I am so thankful that every morning when I wake up, I know it's true of you as well, that I don't wake up in the morning and say, all right, this morning I've got to figure out once again what constitutes right and wrong in the world, um, what commandments I should obey or I shouldn't obey, uh, what are the definitions of good and bad, and I have to come up with them on my own. Imagine the if you had the weight of that every single day to wake up to. We didn't have God's wisdom. We didn't have His definitions of right and wrong, good and bad. What a weight that would be upon us. And yet a lot of people live under that weight. I'm glad to be done with it. And uh, a case study (laughs) in being more stupid than any man. So he poses these five questions uh, to such a person. He says, who has ascended into heaven? Uh, God. Uh, Only He is the one who uh, moves freely between heaven and between earth. He's the only one that has access to the whole expanse of the universe. Who can control the massive power of the wind? Uh, We don't have uh, any uh, say over that. Certainly those of us who are suffering from allergies right now, we don't have any say over controlling the wind and blowing whatever into our heads to make them feel gigantic. Um, So only God has control over the wind. Who holds uh, water in the clouds? Well, God does that. Who has set the boundaries for the land masses and the seas? Again, the answer is God. And then he poses this wonderful question, what is his name and the name of his son? And so the answer to this, the question's right through, God, 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 God is the answer. What is his name, God? And this amazing question, and the name of his son. And so here, Agur, he uh, uh, fascinating, he declares God in the Old Testament to have a son. And what is the name of his son? Of course, we know the name of the Son of God to be Jesus. It's interesting that this verse really is a shock to most uh, Jewish people who have been taught that God does not have a son and never had a son. But here clearly, again, we see along with Psalm 2, we see uh, this revelation in the Old Testament of the fact that God uh, has a son. And so uh, uh, Jesus' claim to sonship uh, with the Father should have never taken uh, the Jewish religious leaders or any Jews by surprise Uh, when he was born into the world and declared himself to be the Son of God. Remember when he spoke to Nicodemus, again, the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Jesus was declaring himself to be the Son of God. But that had already been established as a fact in the book of Proverbs and Psalms and elsewhere in the Old Testament that he would be divine and he would be the Son of God. And that's why on the morning when Jesus was uh, ultimately crucified and he stands before the religious leaders and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. And he said to them, if I tell you, you'll by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you'll by no means answer me or let me go. Jesus said, hereafter, the Son of Man will sit at the right hand of the power of God they all said, "You Are you then the Son of God? Jesus said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we have uh, need to have other than this? He's guilty of blasphemy. We've heard it ourselves uh, from his own mouth. And yet it shouldn't have been a blasphemy. It should have been a confirmation of the fact that, Hey, this is the guy that was spoken of in the Old Testament. And then... Uh, Agur, he turns now from the revelation of God in nature to the revelation of God uh, in the Word. We know that God exists by virtue of the fact of creation around us. Paul brings the argument out in the book of Romans. Creation speaks of a creator. Design speaks of a designer. So we know that God exists by virtue of creation. We know that he's powerful because only one who is powerful could uh, create and design all of this. But God wants us to know an awful lot more about Him than just the fact that He is powerful. And, uh, and so He reveals His nature through His Word. And so He says, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in Him. Do not add to His words lest He rebuke you and you be found a liar. And so how can we come to know what God is like? By turning to His Uh, to his word and then partaking of his wisdom and we do that through his word it's pure Uh, he tells us that means it's tested it's tried it's flawless I'll tell you it's my life has proven it to be flawless and to be pure every word of God is in that category Agur declares that God's Word is a shield to those who put their trust in Him. And so this speaks of the security that we experience as we know the Word of God, as we obey the Word of God. The safest place in the whole wide world to live in is uh, Pacific Grove, Carmel, Livermore. Notice I'm not naming a valley city. No, none of those things are true. The safest place a person can live in in the world is in obedience to God's Word. That's the only safe place, no matter where we live geographically or what city that we live in. To obey God's Word, to keep His Word and obey His calling, that is the safest place a person can live. People are very anxious today about their safety and about... You know, rising crime. And again, we talk about brutality and we talk about um, the savageness of things as people are becoming more and more animal like and we get anxious about things. The single greatest thing that we can do to assure our safety is to just walk close to God, obey His word, function in His calling. And then He numbers our days related to all of that. And so the safety of uh, the word of god doesn 't mean that everything will go you know easy for us or it'll be we won 't face any difficulty. The uh, sun you know, it rains on the just and on the unjust alike, but that 's the safe place uh, for us to be and the Word of God he tells us in verse six uh, it 's pure just as it is, and he warns against any mad adding uh, to god 's word who would add to god 's word uh, the kind of arrogance to believe that I could improve upon the word of God and so our opinions aren't to be added to the word of God not to be presented as uh, on a par with the word of God and so we want to stay away from that certainly adding man's traditions to the word of God this is folly always has been folly and then you get into some kinds of the Christian cults who take and have entire new books that they write and they add to the bible you know and, uh, and all of that. And here's the warning against adding to the Word of God. Why no need to add to the Word of God? It's perfect just as it is. Two things I request of you and deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted for me lest I be full and deny you and say who is the Lord or lest I be poor And steal and profane the name of my God. And so these verses contain the only prayer in the book of Proverbs. And he makes two requests of God in his life uh, before eternity, this life that he's living before he heads into eternity. When he says, Before I die, it means as long as I live. He says, First, protect me from uh, falsehood and from lying. I don't want to live for emptiness. I don't want to live for lies. I don't want to live under the influence uh, of uh, of that in my relationship with God or in my relationship with my fellow man I just want to live a life of reality uh, and integrity and then second that God would provide him with daily food or daily sustenance protect him from the temptation of the rich and that is to have plenty of food the person who sits down in the morning and says our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. Give us this day our day. Oh, boy, I can't really pray that. I got food for, you know, months out there. I got the money to buy food till the end of my life and for my children and my children's children. And, and sometimes when a person has a lot of resources in life, they're wealthy in that regard, and that would have been a wealthy person. In in the Old Testament days, then there is that tendency to deny the Lord, get fat and sassy spiritually, and be untrue to the Lord, forget him, and drift away from him. He also asks for protection, uh, to protect him from the temptation of the poor, which is to be so poor that you're tempted to steal and then do damage to the Lord's reputation and to our own testimony. And so it's a beautiful prayer in the Old Testament where it's like, God, you know me Uh, You know I'm not like anybody else in the whole wide world. I have temptations that this person doesn't have. They have temptations that I don't have. I have personality quirks and flaws that they don't have, but they have quirks and flaws that I don't have. And so, Lord, how much... Of material things how much of food is just right for me and how you know to me to be and don't give me any more than that and don't give me that any less than that and sometimes you know we want more and more and more and we don't want to live by faith and we want all of this and we wonder why god doesn't and some and god always knows more than we do that boy we could if he didn't keep us right there dependent on him on a daily basis not just materially but emotionally mentally all different ways spiritually that we just would like a little sheep go wandering off. And so this prayer, God, you keep me right where I need to be in terms of how you bless me materially. You know best. I just ask that you keep me from either of those two extremes. Is a wonderful prayer and a prayer that the Lord loves to answer. Do not malign a servant to his master, lest he curse you and you be found guilty. So warning against maligning or slandering a servant to his master in order to cause the master to become suspicious of his servant. You know, a servant had a tough life in those days. Servants have a tough life all around the world today. It's a difficult life. They don't need the added aggravation of a friend of their master coming to them or a friend of their employer coming to them and then speaking, raising suspicions in their mind about this person and now the owner is looking at them, you know, from uh, a, a kind of hostile uh, viewpoint, and nobody needs that, that kind of uh, aggravation. It's a funny thing, isn't it, how the power of words, how uh, somebody comes, especially if they're a friend, and they speak something into our ear negatively about another person, and how that can fester. And it can end up developing like a reality. There's no reason to believe it about this other person. And yet it's there. And now I find myself looking at them in a way that I've never looked at them before. They've never deserved to be looked at with suspicion and all. And yet these little thoughts that get put into our mind and to recognize them for what they are and say, no, I'm not going to have anything to do with that. God, You know the truth. I give it to You. And I want to maintain this healthy relationship I have with everybody Uh, within uh, my life. And so God warns that if a person uh, does take and slander a servant to his master and gossips and slanders how much, you know, a servant of the Lord, you know, then... um, uh, you run the risk of having the servant privately curse you and that God would then hear that curse and uh, because of His great compassion for the oppressed then honor that curse or that prayer for judgment. And so the idea is once again, as we see all the way through the book of Proverbs, not to take advantage of people who are vulnerable because of a lack of wealth or a lack of power, not even to take advantage of them verbally. There's a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. There's a generation that's pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. There's a generation, oh, how lofty uh, are their eyes and their eyelids are lifted up. There is a generation whose teeth are like swords and... And whose fangs are like knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. And so four uh, very undesirable uh, traits to see in a particular generation of people on uh, the earth. So if an older generation looks behind them and the younger generation is marked by one of these things, it's a little bit of trouble. Two of these things, it's a fair amount of trouble. Three of these things, it's big-time trouble. And four of these things, uh, it's a sinkhole. It's going to be a real problem. And so the importance of of each generation, you know, being godly and commendable. So the undesirable marks of a generation, number one, he says in in verse 11, a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. In other words, a generation that is disrespectful and unthankful. They're disrespectful toward their parents and they're unthankful for the sacrifice of their parents in raising them. And so in the minds of this undesirable, Uh, generation, all that their parents did for them was owed to them. That was what they were entitled to. It was their due, and uh, they have no sense of the sacrifice and the hard work that was uh, behind it. And so even though this kind of thing is uh, epidemic in the Western culture, I don't see that it marks everyone in the younger generation, not even remotely, uh, but it is a growing trend where there's just this sense that uh, I'm owed these kind of things and uh, and because that's all around us, we shouldn't uh, view it that way. The one generation is... there isn't ev- there, Sometimes you can't respect everything or even most things about the generation that's gone before us. But we can respect uh, the position of our parents, the authority that's been given them by God. We can uh, uh, respect uh, when it was there as a part of our life. Uh, a a determined attempt on their part, a sacrificial attempt to tend us and to take care of us and to raise us into adult life. Second mark of an undesirable uh, generation is one that's pure in its own eyes and yet is not uh, washed from its filthiness. In other words, it's shameless. They live a life that's filthy. They live a life that is shameful. Uh, but they're pure in their own eyes. In other words, they won't listen to anybody. They want to live the life that they want to live. It's an impure life, and you can't tell them uh, anything. They know everything already, and, uh, and so that's a bad mark in the generation. Third, a generation that's lofty in their own eyes. Their eyelids are lifted up. In other words, they're proud in their uh, arrogance. So it's a, a generation that's self-consumed and, and uh, filled with a sense of their... Uh, own importance. Nobody and uh, nothing in the whole world is as important in their eyes as themselves and, and uh, nobody and nothing else is as worthy of their attention as themselves. And then number four, a generation whose teeth are like swords and whose fangs are like knives. They devour the poor from the earth and the needy from among men. So they're self-dominated and uh, as a result they're oppressive uh, toward the vulnerable and the powerless around them. In other words, this person, if I can take advantage of them in order to get what I want, then they will uh, readily do that. People just exist to use in order for me to advance myself. So four marks of a generation that is in trouble and uh, any nation or the world itself as a whole, uh, if there's a generation coming up behind it, uh, those are concerns uh, that ought to create alarm. The leech has two daughters, give and give. (laughs) That's the way a leech is, isn't it? uh, You ever had a leech give you something? No, no, they're bloodsuckers, aren't they? They're takers, 100%. There are three things that are never satisfied. Four never say enough. You never hear these four things ever say, that's it, stop, enough already. The grave, the barren womb, the earth that is not satisfied with water, the earth at a time of drought, and the fire never says enough. And so four things that are uh, never, ever satisfied. The grave, the grave never stops. Death never stops and says, all right, listen, that's enough. I mean, we've got this place crammed down here with about, you know, 12 billion people. Don't be sending any more down. I'm satisfied. I don't want to take another person. Death never does that. It is happy to grab uh, the next person. The barren womb, of course, uh, is never, ever willing to accept its uh, sterility, but it always continually hopes for a miracle, for motherhood. The earth again during a time of drought, never satisfied with water. It always wants water, especially as he's writing from the Middle East where water is life. Water is life everywhere, isn't it? California it's life and uh, in the Middle East as well and then fire is a fourth thing fire never stops um, because of um, because it's satisfied I was re- recently reading a, a book on um, the Warsaw Ghetto uprising of the 50 or 60,000 Jews that were left in the Warsaw Ghetto during World War II after about 450,000 of them had been killed and liquidated and sent to death camps and labor camps from out of just one city alone in Poland. And they realized, okay, these folks are, they're going to kill us all. And so they proceeded to lead a rebellion against the Nazis. They were able to hold on for a little bit over a month. It was remarkable with hardly any weapons and fighting against the most amazing army at the time and all. And uh, the Nazis came in and they decided, we know how to take care of this. And they just sent some bombs into the city and they just started fires everywhere until the whole ghetto just burned right down. We think about the, uh, you know, the Chicago fire and, and the fire in San Francisco with the earthquake, 1906. These fires just burned. A fire never says, okay, that's enough, not one more house. It'll burn everything that it can possibly uh, burn. Verse 17, the eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out. The idea is don't think of the birds. Uh, the idea is you're dead. Your body's lying out in the field and the uh, vultures and all will just come and eat you uh, out in there and the young eaglets, uh, eagles will eat it. So a warning uh, concerning the end of a rebellion in a child against godly parents and that It can certainly lead to an early death. And when it talks about not only an early death here, they won't outlive their parents, but uh, they will uh, die a death in which they're not going to be buried. That speaks of a violent death. It's very important to the Jews, always has been, uh, the importance of burying a body. Uh, For a body to lay out in the open, And to be picked uh, over by scavengers, that's an affront to their uh, sensibilities and their uh, understanding of things. That's why sometimes when you have seen the the buses in past time where the terrorists were blowing up buses in Jerusalem and you would see these... um, um, observant jews be out there with the medical crews and some of them are working to save the lives of those that are still alive after the bombing and then others have the responsibility of picking up every single piece of jewish flesh that is stuck to buildings and on the ground and on the street because for them it's important that a body be handled properly in death and that it be buried. So it would be a great shame for someone, a Jew, to die in in a place and in a condition where their body would be unburied and uh, and as a result of a violent uh, death And so this proverb speaks in a very, very powerful way of the terrible tragedy and shame that a rebellious life can end up producing. Verse 18, there are three things which are too wonderful for me. Yes, four I do not understand. This is one of my favorites. Give me just a moment. Okay, I'm ready. The way of an eagle in the air the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a virgin. And so uh, here he writes and he says, these are four things that I don't understand. They're too wonderful uh, for me. In other words, I, I don't understand them and I can't for the life of me figure them out, but I never grow tired of watching them and observing them. The way of an eagle in the air. Is that one of the most beautiful, majestic things to watch? Is to watch an eagle soar and fly and use the wind and all. And you just look at it and you can't figure out how all that looks, but how it all works. But you just admire the beauty of that eagle. The way of a serpent on a rock. I mean, what young boy doesn't like to catch a snake in your childhood and you watch a snake on a rock, and how they have no hands, they have no feet, they have no arms, they have no legs, and they're just able to make this movement across a rock. And you watch a snake when it's moving. Not my wife. She's not interested in looking at snakes or lizards. But everyone but my wife and other women in the room, like my wife, and men in the room who are like my wife, we will not identify you, though. So, everybody okay? Okay. You watch it. It's a marvel to watch a snake move, isn't it? I mean, you just know childhood should be without uh, having seen that. And then there's the marvel of a, the way of a ship in the midst of a sea. And you just watch a ship from the shore and you just see it. They got the sails out and it's just floating across that water. It's so majestic and it's so beautiful to watch uh, and then the way of a man with a virgin. And the idea here is watching two young people who are in love take kind of their first uh, awkward steps in getting to know each other through kind of a courtship. And so. He doesn't know, you know. He does. He doesn't know. This is. He likes her. She likes him. But he doesn't really know. And does he know? And this. And only one way to find out. And hi, how are you? And oh, you know. He doesn't know what to say after that. The awkward silence, you know, that occurs there. She feels uncomfortable for him, but she likes him. Hopes it turns into something, you know. And so she's patient with him while. The and then you're over here standing across the room or at a family reunion or you watch it or you see it happening at church at something and you're a little bit older like I am and I and you look at it and you say I'm watching something wonderful something beautiful those early steps and young love there's a poet lyricist who wrote ain't no doubt in no one's mind that loves the sweetest thing around and it really is, and it's fun to watch innocent, pure love begin between a young man and a young woman, one of the most beautiful things to view and observe in life. Now, in contrast to all of that, uh, verse 20, there, uh, this is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats, she wipes her mouth, and uh, says, I have done no wickedness. So lots of warnings against uh, the immoral woman or the adulterous woman, and it talks about uh, the way of an adulterous woman with men. Her heart is so hardened uh, that she views uh, the act of adultery or sexual immorality with a man as being as unremarkable as a Big Mac. She just... You know, you just eat a Big Mac and you wipe your mouth and you go on about your business. She engages in sex and she goes on about her business as if it's no big deal, as opposed to um, viewing sex as just this beautiful, God given thing that is to be expressed within the confines of, of marriage and the commitment of a marriage relationship. Three things, and he's into this three four, it's beautiful poetry. Verse 21, for three things the earth is perturbed, or it's disturbed or disquieted. Yes, for four it cannot bear up. For a servant when he reigns, a fool when he's filled with food, a hateful woman when she is married, and a maidservant who succeeds uh, her mistress. And so talks about a servant when he reigns. In other words, someone who takes a position of leadership that they're completely unprepared for, it means a disaster for the people that are um, underneath the authority of that slave that has taken that particular uh, position. And uh, that's those kind of people. You think that a slave who took a position of authority would be Um, uh, the best friend of the poor and the weak, but history has shown it to be uh, just the opposite. You think about uh, people that come from super humble beginnings and they got a hold of power. You think about Hitler, you think about Mao and and, uh, Castro and Lenin. So uh, get in those positions and everybody pays a price because they lack the character for the position. So, you know, ruling something well isn't... uh, it isn't as easy as people think that it is. There's a certain kind of person, and again, we have to be careful of it because we live in volatile times right now. There are certain kinds of people who are only good at revolution. They're only good at overturning something and destroying something. And uh, sometimes things do need to be overturned. There are revolutions sometimes that are necessary. But that doesn't mean that they're a candidate then to lead what it is that they have overthrown because... Uh, lots of people can have a revolution and lead a revolution but they're no good at ruling afterward uh, another uh, thing that perturbs the earth is a fool when he's filled with food. So he gets full and he's got all his belly full and all of this and he becomes more arrogant and insufferable than ever and spouts off everything that's on his mind and, uh, you know, less aware of the fact that he's a fool than ever. And uh, But a full belly gets a lot of people talking. A hateful woman when she's married. And so this speaks of a hate-filled woman and uh, that and a hate filled woman is a very, very miserable woman, and now uh, she 's going to make life equally miserable for her husband and for her children and so what a woman is single, she is more of married, what a man is single, he is more of married, and so married and so if a person is a hate filled person that 's not a good person uh, to marry and so uh, this is probably a warning in those days they arranged marriages and so probably a warning to parents to not arrange a marriage between your son and a hate-filled woman because a hate-filled woman is probably not going to get married and uh, probably in that culture the only way that she would get married is through an arranged marriage and so the warning to the parents don't arrange that don't put your son or your child in that uh, that kind of a situation. The fourth thing that perturbs the earth is a maidservant who succeeds her mistress, and uh, this speaks of a maidservant who succeeds her former mistress, presumably upon the death of uh, the wife, and, but she lacks the refinement, she lacks the grace that's required in a wife, in that kind of a marriage, and so she's ill-prepared for the demands of that marriage. And so she may be very young, she may be very pretty, but it's going to be nothing but trouble uh, for the husband. Verse 24, there are four things that are little on the earth, but they're exceedingly wise. I like this too, because I like bugs and animals and stuff. And so, the ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a feeble folk, yet they make their home in the crags. The locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. Uh, The spider carefully grasps with its uh, hands and is in king's palaces. And so, these things are small, but they're wise And uh, they have significant shortcomings that are made up for by their wisdom. And so the ant is a small but a wise creature. How uh, so? They're not strong, but they prepare their food in the summer. So they're an, uh, an insect, an animal, which is wise in their foresight. They plan for the future. They prepare for the future. Ants do that. And, uh, of course, it speaks significantly uh, in terms of wisdom for us to prepare for an eternal future by putting our faith uh, in Christ. And then it talks about the rock badgers and conies. They're very, very feeble, but they make their homes in the rocks. This is always a fun part of a trip to Israel. You see these conies, or they're called hyraxes, or Rock badgers, and basically, they're just a giant hamster. They're so, they're just this little plump uh, pot pie for an eagle or a bird of prey or a coyote. I mean, it's like dig in, and uh, they don't they 're not big exercisers, so you get it 's very marbled meat that you get on a a rock So they're as vulnerable as can be. But you go to Israel and you see them all over the place, most specifically in three or four spots where typically on a trip we get to see several of them come out. And they come out from the crags of the rocks, the openings in the rocks. They sun themselves there. They eat a little bit, but they're always on the lookout for a predator. And boom, when there's any danger, they go right back into the rocks. So they hide themselves in the rock. Uh, the a place that is uh, stronger for them, their place of uh, they're weak, but their home, their place of safety and salvation, is strong. And of course, this speaks to the salvation that we have in Christ. Never want to leave that rock, and and that's the rock of salvation is Jesus. And then he talks about the locusts in verse twenty-seven. They have no king; they don't have a visible ruler. So people that apparently study locusts, there's no like, where's the guy that's in charge? They just come in and they just eat everything. And yet they're very ordered. Uh, they're like a military machine as they, uh, as they operate. And so they advance in ranks, we're told, and uh, very awesome to watch. And so they live and work in cooperation uh, with one another. And the highest application to, for us is related to the gospel and, and in order for us as Christians to fulfill the Great Commission It requires cooperation with other Christians and a willingness to listen to the head of the body of Christ, and that is Christ himself and this person of the Holy Spirit that keeps us all on the same page. And then he talks about the spider. It can just as easily be the gecko or the lizard. It's small, but it lives in king's palaces. Man, I mean, it doesn't pay any rent or anything. That guy built that whole castle, and the gecko or the spider gets to live in there, the lizard gets to live in there, so they can slip into the greatest houses and the greatest palaces, and and it speaks of the fact how God takes uh, seemingly insignificant people and puts them in astonishing places of um, significance and influence. And that's always fun to watch, and it happens Uh, within this body, I'm sure, in every body of Christians where um, on a regular basis where somebody, a Christian, wakes up one day, so to speak, in life and they're in the middle of this gigantic scene that they could have never dreamed that they would be in. I've been, you know, nominated to be where? I've been elected to be where? I've been chosen by who to be here? What am I doing in this room? And and here you feel insignificant and all and yet God has made that place for you. It's amazing where he gets his people into for his purposes. There are three things that are majestic in pace. They're just uh, fun to watch because how they handle themselves and four that are stately in walk. A lion, which is mighty among the beasts. And does not turn away from any, a greyhound, a male goat also, and a king whose troops are with him. If you have been foolish in exalting yourself, or if you have devised evil, put your hand on your mouth. For as the churning of milk produces butter, and the ringing of the nose produces blood. You ever had your nose ringed? It'll produce blood, won't it? so the forcing of wrath produces strife. So here's four things that are beautiful to watch in terms of um, how they carry themselves, how majestically they carry themselves in life. And, uh, And this is all in contrast to the lowly animals that have just been spoken about. There's the lion, and of course, he's the king of the beasts. He doesn't have any enemies at all in the wild kingdom. And so He just walks around like the big boss that he is. He doesn't have a concern in the world. And so uh, very, very majestic. Lions are very, very fun to watch from a long distance away. (laughs) But it's something to watch them. The greyhound is interesting as well. Absolutely magnificent as it runs. I mean, it literally becomes airborne half the time uh, that it's running and the word might also refer there to where it talks about greyhound. It might refer also to a rooster. The Hebrew can go a couple different ways there. And a rooster is a, is a picture of being majestic in, uh, in its bearing. I mean, it just walks around the whole, uh, you know, barnyard and everything kind of full of itself. And, and, uh, and, and just it's an incurable strutter. A male goat. Every time we go to Israel, we go to En Gedi, and uh, we're blessed to see usually several and sometimes dozens of male goats leading uh, their f- particular flock through the area, and, um, and they, uh, as they lead that group, the big horns and all, and they don't, they're just, cu- just as cool as a cucumber, you know, and and uh, leading, carrying themselves very majestically. And then he talks about a king leading his troops. And so a king, when he's got his army around him, you know, no matter what kind of a wormy guy he is, he feels pretty good about that and rises to the moment, you know, to be, have a majestic bearing uh, uh, related to leading that uh, great army. And then he talks about while there all of those are very quietly majestic uh, there's, in contrast, the man who tries to impress everyone, tries to get them to follow him or to be impressed with him through self-promotion, all these other means, and, uh, and the abuse of power. That kind of person isn't of this ilk at all. He's just a bully, and he's a fool, and uh, he should keep his mouth shut, the proverb says, and leave people alone. known uh, as clarity in the Bible. Uh, chapter 31. Uh, these are the words here of King uh, Lemuel's mother taught him. And so the words of King Lemuel, the utterance which his uh, mother taught him, what my son and what son of my womb and what son of my vows he has, he was born to answer. uh, And what son of my vows uh, do not give your strength to women, Uh, nor your ways to that which destroys kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him who is bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Open your mouth for the speechless uh, in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and the needy. And so here's a mother's wisdom to her son, uh, who was ultimately, she knew, going to become uh, a king. And King Lemuel was so impacted by his mother's words that she apparently uh, taught him in preparation for his role in life uh, that... Uh, he shares it with us so that it can also be a part of our uh, ministries as unto the Lord. I think this is very encouraging to mothers, who, godly mothers, who raise their children to see the influence of how it can live on in, in their children. Now, there's no record of who King Lemuel was. He wasn't one of the kings of Israel. His name means dedicated to God, which is uh, probably comes from in verse two, where she says, "And what son of my vows apparently she was he was born as an as a answer to prayer, in which she vowed to God to dedicate her son to the Lord if if uh, he would give her a son, so his name means belonging to God or dedicated to God, and the most important thing about him in the Bible is uh, what the the uh, counsel that his mother gave to him and that he has kept alive to impart to us. The mother warns his uh, her son against sexual immorality and sexual addiction. That's an important warning uh, for all men, all leaders, and all powerful men, certainly, everyone though. And uh, in those days when a man would become a king, He developed quite a harem. It was just the way of the culture all around him. He'd take on many wives, many concubines. And she warns him of the fact that if you become obsessed with sex and that becomes the dominant thing in your life, then you're going to end up at the end of your reign realizing, I wasted my whole life obsessed with this when I had an opportunity to make a difference for God and a difference for people in human history. And you'll throw it away through uh, sexual uh, addiction and sexual distraction. And so very wise counsel from a mother and uh, that it's very intoxicating, as intoxicating as the next warning she gives there in verses 4 through 7 to steer clear of alcohol. She says drinking is not uh, fitting for a king. That's not a life of drunkenness or uh, having a buzz on all the time. That isn't worthy of a high calling as a king. She tells him in verse 5, it'll adversely affect your judgment Think about, just talk to any law enforcement officer about how many dumb things and tragic things are done uh, under the influ- influence of alcohol. I mean, if that was just removed, what uh, we're already dumb enough. We don't need the help. And, and uh, But alcohol, especially in that kind of a position as well, it influences so many other people. And she tells him, and it's very good counsel, that he's not to use it, verses 6 and 7, as an escape the way that other people uh, do. And so they're uh, called to a position of uh, responsibility. He can't afford to come under the influence of alcohol. Uh, we are... Royalty as Christians. We are ambassadors for Christ, and we are not to come under the influence of alcohol. But Paul says, What in Ephesians? He says, Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's always uh, a safe thing for us. So the world may go to alcohol and drugs to deal with its problems, but the child of God who wants their life to make a difference in human history for God, we take our problems to the Lord and uh, to the Holy Spirit to have them solved. And so um, she then closes it out by telling him in verses 8 and 9 that he needs to open his mouth on behalf of all of the subjects. and. Uh, and, and to use the office to further the people and not for himself. And so it would be a terrible thing to become a king. There's a lot of people who have been powerful in history. They become kings. They become a ruler of a nation. They rule for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, and you look back, and all it was was just debauchery for them. It was just a self-serving position. They didn't make life better for the poor. They didn't make life better for the powerless or their nation. And if that person has any kind of a conscience at the end of their life, they would recognize, I have completely wasted my life. And so she is telling, teaching him now how not to waste his life. And you've been given that position by God, but it's not for you. It is to operate in that position for the good of those that don't hold the position but are dependent upon good decisions coming from you for their welfare. And then we close here with uh, Proverbs uh, chapter uh, 31 with the description of the ideal wife and mother. And I would say this is the ideal wife and uh, mother. Well, I didn't really mean it that way. But it, you read through it, and that's a lot to live up to and all. But it's a beautiful description of a virtuous or an excellent wife, and uh, she is known as the Proverbs thirty. Uh, one woman. It's an acrostic poem, which means that each of the 22 uh, verses that are Uh, given here, and beginning in verse 10, it uh, begins with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew uh, alphabet. And one of the things I like about how the book of Proverbs closes up with this portrait of uh, the Proverbs 31 woman, the virtuous woman, is the book has had so much to say, uh, and necessarily so, against Uh, the ungodly woman, the sexually immoral woman, and all of these kind of things, wicked woman. But here he ends the book with this beautiful poem uh, to the woman who fears or loves the Lord. And here's her characteristics. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. In other words, uh, such a wife is valuable, indeed priceless. The heart of her husband trusts, uh, safely trusts in her, so he will have no lack of gain. She's trustworthy in every way. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life, so she's a good helpmate. She accepts her God-given role to help, uh, be a help uh, to her husband and a support to her husband, and so she's always operating in the best interests of her husband and mine. She uh, seeks wool and flax, and willingly works with her hands. So she's hardworking. She's industrious. She doesn't sit at home and watch soap operas and uh, eat bonbons and caramel corn and um, uh, uh, carameled apples or candied apples or string licorice uh, or whatever. So she's hardworking. She's, hard working. she's and, and that's a beautiful thing to see. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. So this speaks of the fact that she does the family shopping, looks for the best deals. She's willing to go a great distance to make the family uh, money and budgets uh, stretch where it needs to stretch. And she also rises while it's yet night, very early in the morning, provides food for her household and a portion for her housemates. So she's an early riser. She attacks the day. She considers a field and buys it from the prophets that uh, she plants a vineyard. So she has good business sense and, again, wise with a family Uh, money and wealth. She girds herself with strength and uh, strengthens her arms. Again, she's not afraid of hard work. She's a hardworking person, has a healthy attitude toward work. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. And so another mention of her business dealing, she works into the night if necessary in order uh, to uh, help with the family. She stretches out her hands to uh, the distaff, and her hand holds the spindle, so she makes clothing and fabrics. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy, so she's compassionate and generous to those in need. So she sells some of the things that she makes in order to make money. But over here, where nobody sees, she realizes there's poor people that... Are in her sphere of influence. It could never buy the quality of what it is that she makes, and so she gives uh, those things uh, freely to them. And so, a generous person. She's not afraid of snow. For her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes sure that they're well dressed and they're uh, warmly dressed. She doesn't make the public schools be a parent to her children. Uh, which is being foisted upon the public schools because of the neglect of both father and mother in our country. And so... She takes that responsibility seriously. She makes tapestry for herself, so it talks about rugs and pillows. Her clothing is fine linen and purple, so she attends to her own uh, appearance and so she is um, careful with money. but uh, she makes sure she 's not austere. She makes sure that uh, her her appearance is uh, is, uh, is attended to in a proper way. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land because of her faithfulness. He can uh, achieve, he knows he is achieving in life what he could never achieve without her. And that's a beautiful thing when a husband realizes that about his wife. I could never do what I do if it weren't for her doing what it is that she does. And she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. In other words, her life, again, is productive. She works hard enough to supply her own family with clothing, and then she makes enough also to sell. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. This talks about her moral character. When you have good moral character, you can be confident related to the future, and she has that confidence. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. So she uses her mouth to communicate kindness and wisdom uh, to her children and to her husband and others. She watches over the ways of her household, does not eat the bread of idleness. In other words, her family is her priority. She's not idle or lazy. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well but you excel them all. And so both the husband and the children express their appreciation to her, and charm is deceitful, and beauty is passing. So charm is a superficial thing. Beauty is temporary, and uh, beauty is temporary, and uh, beauty is temporary, <laughs> and um, it's very, very temporary, and uh, It comes and it goes. But a woman, I'm not talking about anybody either, by the way. Don't read into that. I'm just thinking. I'm I'm a nervous wreck in this chapter, candidly. (laughs) This is something that a woman should be teaching uh, to women. So, but uh, charm is deceitful and beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. And so here's the whole reason for uh, what's described in, Uh, all the way through to verse 29, her love and her respect for the Lord. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. And so that beauty of that kind of a life causes her to be well-spoken of uh, far and wide. And so we come now to the end of the book of Proverbs. So quite an accomplishment. and. what a wonderful book it is. I love that this book, and i love to have gone uh, through it with you. And I love the fact that our younger generation is in the room on these nights, and uh, specifically related to the book of Proverbs. And um, because, again, as I mentioned, when we began the whole thing, I re- growing up as a kid, I remember... My brother and I, we went to a Catholic school, an elementary school. I think we were there for two weeks, and they expelled us. Even the nuns, even the nuns could not. And we were just little guys, so many fights and torn-up uniforms, and the parents began to complain, and we were out. And, uh, but for really, in all seriousness, for my twin brother and my sisters, when, when we hit the door heading out into life, completely unprepared. If it weren't for teachers, if it weren't for other people who showed an interest in us, uh, coaches and things like that, I was fortunate I had that more than the others of them uh, did in some respects. And, uh, but we headed out the door in a terrible, terrible shape in terms of being prepared for the life that was not impressed with us and was ready to victimize us one of a thousand different ways And I remember only two things that my mom used to tell us, Um, two wrongs don't make a right and it's an unfair world. That was about the summation of the impartation of wisdom into our lives. We needed a bit more than that. I don't put anyone down, everybody did the best they could at the time. But it makes me appreciate how important the book of Proverbs is today because Life is so much harder now for so many more kids today where they're not getting any input at all except what Hollywood and the music industry and all these other things are just pumping into them at the world's worst time in their life to be able to try and navigate that. Maybe at 22, maybe at 25, maybe at 28, they could successfully do so, but not at 13, not at 15, not at 18, not and the way that they're getting hit. And so how wonderful it is to have this wisdom that we can turn to at any time and to know that it will never, ever fail us. Let's stand together and we'll pray.